to a new episode of Podcast with Avash. And for today's guest, we have Sisir Kanal. Uh, welcome, Sisir Dai. Welcome to my podcast show. Thank you, Avash. Oh. Look forward to talking to you. Oh, definitely. For all the people uh, who don't uh, know about you, can you please give me a little bit of a uh, brief introduction of yourself? Uh, these days, I like to call myself a, an entrepreneur. I've been uh, part of uh, small startups uh, since my college day in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, almost always worked for startup uh, organization as interns uh, in college and uh, back in Nepal when I returned uh, about uh, six, uh, eight years back, uh, we started um, an education initiative called Teach for Nepal. Uh, through which uh, we have been working in education uh, very recently in between lockdown uh, with a few friends. I started a logistic delivery company uh, and I'm in the process of launching a sort of policy research and governance related organization where we'll mobilize young people to work in governments across Nepal. Oh, that's amazing. You have like a lot of uh, portfolio in, uh, in your background. You just like uh, you, you've been wearing the Teach for Nepal T-shirt as well. So uh, I know you have you are a co-founder of that organization, right? So uh, just get starting with like, uh, can you please tell me like, what what does Teach for Nepal actually mean? Uh, what is your goal of that organization? So before I sort of talk about Teach for Nepal, I think uh, let me sort of go uh, so give you a context of education in Nepal. Uh, when I had come back uh, after my uh, graduate work uh, in um, Wisconsin, um, I was working through another organization that I would uh, sort of um, co-founded again with a bunch of other friends, uh, but I, which was inspired by a Sri Lanka-based uh, Gandhian organization called Sarvodaya, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically working with local communities for sustainable uh, finding sustainable local solution, mobilizing local resources. Uh, uh, so in in that process of working in rural villages in Nepal, what we came across was massive education barriers, particularly for kids growing up in rural Nepal. Access to good quality education was a big, big problem. And uh, often in villages, teach, uh, people in the community would ask us to support them with, with sending them good teachers, like improving education quality. So I ended up sort of, uh, I, when I sort of uh, ended up having this series of these kind of conversations in Nepali villages, I wanted to learn more. So I began to do research in Nepal's education landscape and I the sort of, some of the statistics were really positive. For example, um, even in, like you know, eight years back when we were starting Teach for Nepal, about 96% of Nepali students at the age of about five had uh, enrolled in schools. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but problem started there, as in access to school had uh, reached most of Nepal's rural community, but um, the quality was a big, big problem. Um, many kids left schools uh, by the time they appear on SLC, which is taken at the end of grade 10, which is a national board examination. So only about um, 30 kids who started grade one in Nepal's public school 
would take that appear in the ex in that exam so 70 kids would leave or drop out so before 70, grade 10 70 percent about 70 percent yeah so out of 170 would have left education by the time they reached grade 10 so of the 30 that remained in grade 10 and appeared on the test nationally only about 50 percent would pass but uh, given we have uh, public and private schools mm -hmm. um, about 90% private schools would pass, but only about 30% public school students would pass and graduate and move on to grade 11 and 12, sort of equivalent of uh, high school in the US. Mm -hmm. um, so, which basically means that if you like take all that number that had started in grade one, only about 10 in public school are likely to pass the SLC and mm -hmm. have opportunity to pursue higher education. So when I saw that data, that was extremely troubling, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, because, you know, we're, we, we're in our second decade of 21st century and only about 10% of Nepali kids um, who go to rural public schools have the opportunity to pursue higher education. And other fact is major, huge majority of Nepali students still go to public schools. Almost, if if you look at one to ten, about eighty-three percent uh, students who are enrolled in Nepal's school system, they go to public schools. Mm -hmm. So only about seventeen, fifteen to seventeen percent students in private schools. Um, That's uh, annually, right? Yes, annually. So, do you have a number like uh, what, what percentage of uh, what number of students actually go into private or public uh, sector? So, overall, sort of about one. If you count our sec normal schools, one to ten school. Uh, that's about uh, 7 million kids. Of that, uh, closer to um, 6 million, which is about 5.7 million kids, are in public schools. So only about a million kids are in private schools. So, which basically means that uh, while 90% kids of that million are likely to eventually complete their school education, 90% of 5.7 are not likely mm. to. And that data was really, really scary to me. Uh, so that sort of led me to look at a potential solution. And when we were doing that research, we also realized that uh, um, one of the big, uh, big areas where students were struggling were in mathematics, science, and English. Mm -hmm. And um, before that, I was, I had, if you remember, I had even done fundraising campaigns mm -hmm. in the U.S. to build schools. So at that point, I realized that it, it wasn't really uh, critical to build schools because they already were access. But what would be very important would be to ensure uh, that kids uh, get right teachers uh, and guidance in math, science, and English, because they, those were the only three subjects where kids in public schools were struggling the most. So okay. about 90% kids who failed in our SLC failed either in math, science, or English. So okay. that sort of led me to think about, okay, what could be potential solutions here? And uh, we sort of uh, then, you know, having uh, studied and lived in America, uh, uh, there is a national program called Teach for America, which I had seen in colleges. So that led uh, us to sort of basically think about could we potentially adapt uh, that uh, Teach for America's model um, in Nepal, which is basically recruiting really, really high, uh, 
really passionate, talented university graduates to teach mm-hmm. in rural public uh, in public schools. So that's the fundamental idea of Teach for Nepal is to attract really, really talented Nepali young university graduates mm-hmm. and ask them to commit to serve in rural public schools in Nepal. In Nepal's context, we felt uh, that um, uh, in uh, as you know, like if you do really well in SLC, our parents tell us to sort of study uh, sciences or study business management uh, so that we can pursue career eventually as a doctors mm-hmm. or engineers or bankers uh, or in business sector. But uh, we are not necessarily encouraged to study um, either education or liberal arts and other sort of related fields. But um, if all kids, pretty much all kids are struggling in math, science and English, and if the people who already have acumen uh, to uh, to teach uh, or have mastery of these contents are never going to into mm-hmm. teaching profession, then we would never solve problems. So from that perspective, we decided to ask really, really talented young people who have not necessarily thought of ever teaching, mm-hmm. uh, who have gone and pursued their degrees in engineering, uh, in business school, in, in social sciences, we ask them to commit to teach for two years. And that's the core of Teach for Nepal is to recruit um, young university graduates uh, and young professionals uh, who are really talented, but may not have thought teaching as their profession. We Mm -hmm. ask them, we recruit them and we train them and send them to teach in rural public school for two years. And they teach uh, uh, sort of a, middle to high school by U.S. sort of standards between grade six and 10 uh, kids in Nepal. Okay. Uh, and they teach math, science and English. So so basically to, from what I understand is, as as we know, like uh, everybody, once they graduate and they go, like once uh, any students are in the level of being able to understand the 10th grade more, like uh, after you graduate and have understanding of uh, junior level or like until 10th grade of education, your resource of all that knowledge can be better be used to spread amongst the people who can't, uh, like who are not getting those kind of education. So your basic concept is try to get those resources who are like uh, who graduated and trying to find people who are finding job or in their own domain, like wherever they are, and trying to grasp those uh, all those knowledge and all those individuals, bring them to a uh, well-needed uh, sector of like a public where the students don't even have good educations and there's a high drop dropout rate and there's a lot of uh, really bad teachers who are educating in the bad education uh, for the regular standard that we need you are basically connecting those dots you are you're building the bridges right exactly so uh, basically we have uh, these young talents who could potentially be uh, really inspirational teachers and mentors to young students in rural communities uh, and there are millions of almost six million nepali uh, uh, kids who are in public schools across the country but have not found right guidance mentorship uh, whether in uh, inside the classroom or outside okay. the classroom so, uh, and we basically connect that yes okay yes yeah, so uh, when did you start like this program uh, our first, uh, we sort of, you know, did all the prepar- preparatory work in 2012 and and uh, recruited, trained and placed our first cohort uh, in 2013. Okay. 
So, uh, like, how many teachers, like, uh, say, like, uh, as you said, the staggering number of the students that needs education is like five million or so every year. But like, uh, there's a definitely big uh, opportunity of a lot of teachers. But like, uh, from your side, like, how how many teachers have you had a chance to bring into the program? Uh, we at this point we have placed all uh, about four hundred over the last uh, seven eight cycle. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they uh, work in about 65 schools in about seven different districts and we teach about 10,000 children every single day. So around 10,000. So you can just see like you, 400 teachers is a staggering number. Like for you to bring able, uh, being able to bring those uh, number of teachers is absolutely like, I don't know, that's a big achievement, but you can just see like how much the gap there is in need of like uh, there's have you ever thought of like what would be a number that would be like perfect for those five million teachers to serve all of the community all of the students of like five million who are in desperate need of a better educator what is an ideal solution beside i think you, whatever you're doing is really marvelous but i don't think it's uh it's not definitely not enough to bring out everybody what do you think is a how can you expand on it like, uh, would right. this program be expandable to all those people, students, or something right. else is needed? Right. Uh, this is a question that keeps us awake a lot, right? <laughs> um, uh, that's uh, that because we, when we talk about say, all closer to six million kids, uh, and we're talking about 30, 35,000 schools of that, about twenty, uh, about thirty, closer to thirty thousand are public schools. Um, there are about uh, two hundred thousand teachers uh, across these schools and even then there is about 60,000 teacher shortage in Nepal right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so the kind of number <laughs> that we have to hit is just too massive and uh, not necessarily, I don't think it would be possible for a non-profit initiative like ours to ever like fully meet if we purely looked at the numbers, like if mm -hmm. you purely looked at 35,000 schools that means that i mean if, if we left private schools which is about six thousand that still leaves about uh closer to thirty thousand public schools so mm -hmm. if we were to only have one person teaching in each of the schools that's like we we're, we're we would have to put thirty thousand uh what uh, teachers are what we call teach for nepal fellows mm -hmm. which is not going to be possible so uh, the way we've looked at this problem is if we just look uh, at scaling from that perspective like meeting the number that would never be uh, possible that uh, not just from meeting the number but it can sometimes also be short-term solution because mm -hmm. we ha would have to keep on doing same thing over and over again like recruit send recruit send recruit send um, but uh, and we've deeply looked into this issue and what we have come uh, to realize um, is that the problem is not just about not having enough teacher. Problem is fundamentally structural and systemic nature. Mm. Uh, why I say this is one is one fundamental question is why do why should kids who go to public schools and by when we mention that public schools that that comes with other sort of context, right? So uh, in um, these public school kids primarily come from rural communities. Mm -hmm. 
they're more likely to be the girls or come from poor and marginalized ethnic backgrounds in Nepal. Mm. Whereas kids who go to private schools, private schools by definition in Nepal, you used to have to pay fee. That means that your parent would have to have some level of financial resources to put you to a private school. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a clear sort of uh, in Nepal's context class, gender, and ethnic gaps. Mm -hmm. And these things a kid cannot choose. You cannot choose your parents, you cannot choose your caste, you cannot choose what kind of economic class you're born into. So, but then in Nepal's context, the, by the virtue of your own birth, your education is likely to take into two different trajectories. If you're born to relatively well-off families, you have access to private school, which means that you'd uh, sort of uh, get better education, relatively better education. You learn in English, which also means that the world of opportunity tends to open to you. You, you know, after your high school, you apply to Australia, UK, US, mm -hmm. and then go to universities in these uh, countries and, 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 and have different set of lifestyles. Or even if you stay in Nepal, you're likely to get into highly paid job opportunity. But if you come from uh, sort of a poor marginalized background, if you're a girl, then you're not likely to go to private schools. That means that your education opportunities are so limited that you're stuck into this vicious cycle of poverty. Yes. So that is, and that question is fundamentally a structural and systemic nature. And why do we not take private education? I mean, you, I mean, um, you know, from a Nepal's perspective or global perspective, most of the Western world is highly capitalistic, mm. free market. I mean, even in America. Yeah. In in US, uh, about 92, 93% in uh, kids go to public schools. Yeah. But in Nepal, it's already 83% and it's declining every year. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the countries, uh, most of the Western democracy have thrived on the strong foundation of public school education. But in Nepal, we're going in a sort of opposite trajectory mm. where people who have resources can have good education those who don't cannot uh, therefore what we've uh, said is that we cannot look at education from a sort of banded solution perspective only so teach for nepal's program is designed even though from the get-go it looks like we're just trying to put teachers into a classroom for limited time that only also for two years. What we're at the heart of this is what we're trying to do is when we train, when we bring really these talented young university graduates into our program, we begin to have the kind of conversation that I just uh, had with you about why we ask this question, why do rural public kids don't have access to good education? Why, why does a girl have to go to a public school? Why does a Dalit kid have to go to a public school, whereas affluent upper caste person goes to a private school? Mm -hmm. And that is a social justice issue. And we be, so uh, these are the conversation we have in our program in the next two years. And at the core, what we try to do is build uh, sort of this leadership uh, capacity of young people 
Mm -hmm. because they live in rural communities for two years. There are many things they experience as they teach. They do different projects uh, um, uh, inside the classroom, outside the classroom. So ultimately our goal is to build pipeline of leaders who mm -hmm. understand and who value justice in education. Okay. So over the, and what we believe is if we can build very strong leaders, they can eventually uh, really change the system because changing system cannot be done overnight. Mm -hmm. But if we can change a system that is empathetic, that understands the pain of uh, kids who grow in uh, in poverty, then then we would then that's when the solution will exist because uh, the system manages thirty five thousand schools, the system manages two hundred thousand teachers, the system, and, and that is all about um, about sort of bringing leadership. Mm -hmm. that is able to tackle this big issue because education at the heart is um you know it's a justice when we then talk about justice then there's a privilege there is a power there is a politics so ultimately yeah. we have to be able to tackle all these big big issues so uh for your for your program at least like uh, have you been uh, collaborating with uh, the education like a uh, department like depa department of education or have you been collaborating with the uh, more private uh, schools how, how how are you actually uh bringing the teacher inside the classroom are you collaborating with schools as well yeah our, our collab from the very beginning uh we've sort of worked uh with government systems uh um, Nepal, when we started back in 2012-13, Nepal was a centralized, unitary country where all the education is managed, used to be managed through Ministry of Education and Department of Education in Kathmandu. Mm. So we partnered, we partnered with them uh, from the very beginning that had opened door for us to work directly in public schools. Mm -hmm. But into a post-2015 constitution, Nepal has federalized mm -hmm. and the responsibility of managing public school has gone to local governments or city governments. So how many, how many of them are there now? There are about 753 uh, local governments across okay. the country. So uh, and, um, that's yeah. definitely interesting. That's definitely interesting. Yeah. So post and it has become even easier for us because we now work even more closer uh, in close partnership with uh, these local uh, or city governments across uh, the countries, across the country. So basically uh, that's one part of our collaboration. In private school, uh, private side, uh, of course, there, there are two ways we work. One is uh, we work with private institutions um, um, uh, like uh, schools, uh, really top in schools uh, where we bring their uh, uh, sort of teachers uh, and principal in our uh, training programs. Uh, we also collaborate uh, with uh, institutions, I mean, in, uh, like uh, Kathmandu University uh, for teachers training. But over the time, we've also built our own internal capacity uh, to do most of the things that we need to do. Um, we also work with uh, private, uh, like in corporate institution, uh, bring their leaders into uh, our training program where they uh, train our fellows into you know leadership and management schools so it's a really broad uh, intersection of nepal's public private institution that come together through teach for nepal many I mean, every year we do this uh, one day teaching program uh, called one day in a school uh, mm -hmm. one day in a classroom basically and we have ambassadors uh, the ceos 
uh, of big uh, like a banks corporate institution celebrities um, editors of uh, national medias um, all of mm -hmm. them who in experience what does it uh, like what would it, what does it look like in for our kids in public school what does it look like for teach for nepal fellows who live in these communities for two years they spend sometimes overnight uh, and teach a day in a, uh, in these rural public schools. So we try to, uh, we uh, like to call ourselves uh, as a movement, Teach for Nepal mm -hmm. movement, where we bring hundreds of people, just not our own, like, you know, teaching fellows, uh, uh, Teach for Nepal fellows, our staff, but a lot of other people uh, in in the idea of uh, sort of strengthening public school education. Like basically educating the people who are, like who are capable to do something and ha have no idea about what is actually going on in the villages with the whatever the students have go th to go through. You are bringing those reality to the people who are capable, like all you said, like uh, people who are in higher position uh, financially or like uh, civilly uh, celebrities or who have, a, who have a certain kind of influence to give out those messages. So you are bringing those kind of scenario and asking, like bringing them together to face the reality and try to see uh, what can be brought about to make those changes, right? So that's more like exactly. a education system for uh, for the students, but also for the regular life people, like uh, who, who are in position to be able to help to, you are giving them education so that they can voluntarily be able to join as with you as a partner to help those uh, in, your, uh, in your objective. Right, exactly. That's uh, because we again uh, just to restress, uh, we think that shifting, ensuring access to education. I mean, good education to all all children, about six million mm -hmm. uh, children in Nepal, would cannot be done by just putting on a few hundred uh, teachers in a classroom. As I said, mm -hmm. because the need is so big. Therefore, we need everybody, uh, with regardless of their place, position, mm -hmm. authority, to seriously. Uh, work towards improving uh, education uh, landscape in Nepal. Therefore, we really try to bring uh, as many people as possible. Okay, so uh, let's let's go to uh, the basic question. Like uh, I had a conversation recently with Dr. Luzinoza, like in our recent podcast, and we've been basically talking really bad about like our education system based. Uh, from what we feel, because I went to private school, you probably have went to private school as well, he did too. And we were like, this is not good, this is not good. But we were thinking on basis of we went to a private school and all the lack of, lackluster, all the punishments and all the motivation, what uh, you say is like a, a good education system in Nepal, we were bashing on those. But compared to those, like uh, the education, education system in the villages are far, far really low quality in this in that sense because uh, as you said that the dropout rate and the ex exact education once they even they pass what they receive after they get out of school is definitely really um, I would say it's it's not up to par with other students from around the world it's really you don't become as much knowledgeable as you should have once you get that grade up so uh, for like, uh, just uh, talking with you as an educator uh, leaving the uh, that ninety percent almost the, aside for those ten percent, like uh, whatever we have that educated system, uh, I want to go into that little bit system. Even that a ten percent of education system, do you think that is a good model for rest of the like whatever we say, like the rest of the students, 
uh, th those are underprivileged should be going towards that or is there even a better system so that everybody like the 10 percent or the rest of 90 percent can eventually get grasped with to be a better like a scholar like uh, whatever their capabilities are right um that's that's another dimension of nepal's education right i mean um uh, when I represent Teach for Nepal and mm -hmm. when I talk about uh, my, our work uh, uh, in public schools, uh, they, that's where there's a basic mastery of content that one should learn in classroom mm -hmm. is missing. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when we come to uh, private schools, uh, then that and if, and then within private space, there's a bunch of schools in Nepal, right? There mm -hmm. are extremely high-end uh, almost international quality schools in Nepal that but that that is accessible to a small less than one mm. percent probably kids <laughs> but they probably get a, a different set of education than like rest of the others who go to uh, private, schools. private schools and private schools I've seen a, a, in a range from that high international quality to mm. sort of a uh, there's a big mid middle range school and there's also a lower range of private schools which serve uh, low in sort of lower middle class families in Nepal. Yeah. So lower the so low end schools are probably not significantly better than public schools in Nepal. Mm -hmm. uh, middle schools do prepare us enough so that we can take SAT, uh, SAT, uh, GREs or TOEFL, IELTS, and move out of Nepal. <laughs> they do enough. Uh, uh, extremely high end, they're probably th of three or five schools in Nepal, so they don't really necessarily count. They can do whatever. I mean, their quality Those are is like different. extremely uh, high, like uh, specialized schools. Yeah, highly specialized, high, more international quality, but they serve very small percentage. Yeah. So, uh, but then uh, across the board, in, both in public and private school, are sort of, if we look at education as a system overall, it's basically preparing us to rote learn and memorization. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, what private schools do better is they help us uh, wrote, learn, and memorize better, so we perform better in the tests. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean, as you, you were pointing out uh, about Dr. Oza and your conversation, that it doesn't necessarily prepare us into the real world, mm -hmm. or it, uh, it doesn't necessarily give us uh, what we call 21st century schools, uh, for example, uh, critical thinking skills, uh, for mm -hmm. example, collaboration skills, working in the team, really planning organizing ourselves uh, strong literacy uh, uh, like sort of this global uh, and local uh, critical knowledge is something we all lack in almost both in public and private school education um, we often are tend to be good at what is at book so basically major difference between public and private schools are private school kids do know what is written in the book, but they often also don't know what's beyond the books. Yeah. So uh, when we look at the system as, as overall, definitely, um, and especially when some of us uh, who have had the privilege of you know, getting international education in, in the US or other mm -hmm. countries, we definitely tend to be very critical of our mm -hmm. own upbringing and the kind of education we uh, receive because you know once we go to this country, we face a very different yeah. education landscape there and we struggled ourselves a lot to adjust in the first few years just to understand mm -hmm. you know, 
um, um, so that from that perspective, definitely we're really far behind. Um, and uh, uh, in the in the ideal world, uh, of course, we would uh, uh, want an education system that prepares all of us, both the kids mm-hmm. uh, who are in public and private schools, to to be uh, better critical thinkings, to to really value arts and science and uh, justice, uh, uh, to have uh, sort of exposure to. Uh, literatures from around the world, uh, and and also to re- critically look at our own our own society, our own history, our our own privileges, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also ha- be able to you know have this really advanced twenty first century skills. But uh, uh, that's that's unfortunately is uh, from where we are, we're really far behind. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, that's the direction we all want to move. Uh, and in some ways, in Tishwa Nepal, we do our best to do that. Uh, but as a system in Nepal, that's uh, unfortunately there's a lot to be done. And uh, with your objectives, like uh, with your program, with your organization, you are basically focusing on math, science, and English, as you said primarily. And uh, like I want you to now really explain to me, like I, I don't, I really don't know how bad the situations are because my, um, I have my family members who teach in public school too and uh, I know there's some stories and they try really hard like they were pr- probably way better than my private school teachers and because I, I took lessons from them because as a tutoring and they were really good but not all public school teachers the teachers themselves has some problem in especially in the villages is uh, I don't know if there are like have like have you done a research on actual teachers like who are teaching them and why is it so bad in all those uh, public schools that's uh, that has multiple factors that influences our teachers so quality if you look at quality of education um, we did a research uh, we I, i've been working as advisor to a mayor in mm-hmm. tulsipur dang about in western nepal about 450 kilometers west from here, uh, which is um, a sub-metropolitan, which Nepal government has categorized that region as sub-metropolitan city by Nepal standard. It's mm-hmm. sort of a, a sort of like one of the big 11 cities. big cities okay. by Nepal standards. But mm-hmm. the, if you physically visit there, it's a small bazaar and then large uh, rural population. It's not mm-hmm. like a big city by any, any means. I mean, it's smaller than most... Uh, um, most towns in uh, sort of most cities, a uh, mid-sized mm-hmm. city in Midwest America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of uh, it's about 150,000 people who live in a large sort of big rural communities across that region. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by Nepal government standards, one of the top 11 sort of cities. Mm-hmm. So we did uh, research. Uh, we're still working on the like in a printing part of the final report but we what we because we've seen these uh, you know last um, uh, uh, seven six seven years we had worked in these rural public school and see our, our teachful Nepal fellows struggle and one of their major complaint has always because we teach upper grade kids uh, from six to ten mm-hmm. uh, they always complain that uh, kids come to these grades without basic mastery over uh, basic literacy basic uh, numeracy that what basically means that well, you, kids struggle with writing basic Nepali, English, and solve so, basic mathematics. Problems. So even the uh, students say who are uh, in grade sixth or seventh or eighth, they, in their educational standard, if you go by uh, actual knowledge, the eighth grade student does not have that proper skill of eighth grade. 
he's like way exactly. less <laughs> right that was what we had experienced so we wanted to and when we, i had uh, uh, this opportunity to work with uh, city to on education reform so one question obviously was how what are our kids learning mm. in that particular city so we did a basic what we call a literacy and numeracy survey so which basically includes um alphabets kohogogo abcd words sentences basic story and responding to a basic uh, paragraph comprehension knowledge mm. it was a benchmark at nepal nepal's grade 3 level curriculum So we administered that test. We mobilized 120 local youth, and over a month, we mo- we tested all 28,000 kids who go to both public and private schools in in the city. And in that particular city in Thulsipur, uh, almost like a two-third kids uh, go to private schools. Mm-hmm. Only a third go to public schools. Um, but a number of schools are fairly close, like about 70 each, uh, both on public and private schools. when we did that test we found out that uh, on average um, only about 20% kids we tested kids all kids from grade 1 to 8 mm-hmm. at a grade 3 standard mm-hmm. but only 20% kids on average could solve a division problem only in public school till 8th grade could, till 8th grade oh, that's a big problem exactly only 3.5% kids were able to read a grade 3 standard comprehension and answered that question 3.5% hmm so that's the scary part right so kids are in grade 8 hmm but majority of them can't speak right a grade 3 level english similar with the mathematics or basic i mean you you, you mm. know basic foundational elements your subtraction your divisions and multiplications mm-hmm. so that that's that's the problem is that even the kids are sort of you know in different age group and different grade levels their mastery of content is really 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 low and once you go like into higher level say 9th and 10th grade which is like higher expectation like if i remember 9th and 10th grade in nepal's uh like private school like uh, the division level of passing that grade is equals to some university classes nepal has a little bit hi- a stricter higher standard on schools yeah. for those as you said like for the students who are having trouble with the third grade of uh, mathematics and go- going into 9th and 10th grade of expectation they are going to fail for sure and they'll feel demoralized absolutely that's why kids leave the school yeah. the massive dropout rate is because kids feel that i mean you know what's the point of going to school if i don't know anything mm-hmm. that was that's one ba- major reason why kids leave school because they feel demoralized uh, and yeah. at the same time they also feel that they are not really learning at the school so the problem again is you know uh, the teacher quality public school has a sort of wide range of teacher quality they are really talented committed teachers who have been trained really well but vast majority of teachers recently there was a um, uh, so uh, to enter a public school education in uh, sort of uh, sort of historically uh, you, you would have to study education in your university or mm. plus to level in nepal right so after your slc we mm. choose our 
uh, sort of measures. Mm. Uh, and um, so what happens is that because of our socio-cultural expectation, if you did you know, distinction and first division, you're obviously asked to uh, take sciences and then yeah. uh, at the worst case management so that- Yeah, even I fell to that to, trap. <laughs> exactly, all of us did, yeah. <laughs> right? So then after science, then um, ideally we are asked to pursue careers in either you know, medicine or engineering or largely what we call a technical fields. Mm. Um, but um, if we, if a kid didn't really want to go to sciences, uh, other alternative that has emerged, that is acceptable to our parents is going to business schools. Anything humanities, low, arts, not, humanities comes in the, the bottom last where people are like, yeah. you're not smart enough for this. So at least go to get a degree in arts and humanities yeah, and that's uh exactly. that's a like a thinking in the in the city level but that's yeah. not not even the reality for the students in the villages they are like basically you don't even get to pass the 10th grade right so so off you know so below that humanities and other is education hmm. right so if that's you the, that's like teaching the, right that's teaching yeah so yeah. To, so you, if, so you enter education. Mean, oftentimes, that's the only choice because mm -hmm. you cannot enter anything else. So you you end up choosing education. So often, that's the only choice. It's available to rural uh, high schools, 11, mm -hmm. 12. So uh, from that, you know, the way we've designed our sort of system, basically, uh, cultural, social expectation, right? Yeah. So from that perspective, if, if you can't do anything, then you, you can be a teacher. From that mindset, we have opened education faculties uh, to only to necessary by bicultural expectation to uh, to individuals who are not necessarily um, have attained strong mastery of content themselves yeah this is like basically what we talk uh, what this is like hitting up the nail in basically what we talked with uh, dr oza is was like uh, i told him that, like this is the way our system educational system has been built is like once you students go past like 10th to go on uh, passing high school and get your grade from even from 10th grade or 8th grade and higher it's like you are smart you are okay you're not so smart and you're a dumbass like our education system grades you by your grade and uh, you are made to choose what you want to be all all the way from pretty much high school I have to choose, like, I want to be a science or I want to go into management. Our brain has not been developed. Like, uh, I remember my own personal experiences. Like, I went into science thinking, like, oh, I got a good, I, I got good enough grades. I want to be, who would study management? That was my, that was how I thought, like, in that time of phase. And then I, when I went to science, my mind changed. Like, I, I'm not being able to, like, memorize all of the formulas and so on. And then I moved to accounting and I loved it. That, and then that's what I was like, what do I judge myself? Is like, am I too stupid to learn science or am I smart enough to learn this? And that's when the whole society thinks that way too, is some people who are smarter, who are, gets grade, 
go like learn uh, go into high expensive college get scholarship go abroad they're the smart people and people who don't uh, get good grades uh, they go into business or so on that's like okay and then rest of the people who don't fit into those like a trap box of science management those who need exact brain function to be active in those uh, programming degrees they're like stupid that's basically our perception is like that i would not say stupid but they're like incapable of that so you go teach be an educator and that's the whole trouble is like once you the society gives uh, perception like whoever teaches are stupid even the smart or the brightest teach uh, like people from those science and uh, like higher education even from management or even from teaching field they don't think teaching is a good profession and uh, from the way I feel your expression is <laughs> like uh, you don't get good teacher because nobody wants to be a good teacher. And that's what I think you are trying to change, right? Right, exactly. That That's the because we I mean, again, the, your personal experience is I mean, I've had the same personal experience, right? I mean, you do good in SLC and then you do science uh, and then you hate it. Uh, and I mean, even then you still have to pursue. So I ended up I mean, I also in the college, I changed from engineering to uh, social sciences, political science, and I mm. loved my classes and I began mm -hmm. to excel, right? So, <laughs> but then the way we sort of been raised uh, or, or we grew up in Nepal, we sort of put in these boxes uh, from early on. So it's so, our mindset is developed in a way that mm -hmm. only people who do sciences are the smartest or that mm -hmm. if you're not uh, pursuing sciences, you'd be looked upon as an incompetent person that that's absolutely not true uh, that's like uh, we we got to uh, experience it once we come here and like uh, uh, like we you and i both come to came to united states and got our uh, education here and we we were more open-minded but i don't know how it is in nepal right now but that's still prevalent i think it's very much prevalent and what is important to note was you know from from I mean growing up before we started teaching Nepal I was, I was doing research and I was doing feasibility study and one of the thing one of the biggest questions that I wanted answered is could we potentially recruit young people who have ne not never thought of teaching as a career to teach uh, at least for two years. Mm. So I was doing focus group research in different faculty and I, I mean, knowing Nepal's context, I knew that uh, it's true as, based on same conversation. So if I were to ask engineering student or a science student or a managed student, answer obviously would be no. So it was sort of expected, right? Yeah. Because that's our, how we grew up. So I was kind of expecting that. Uh, and uh, and sort of the response was largely like that, uh, which wasn't uh, necessarily different. Uh, and part of that research, I also went to education faculty, one of the colleges in Kathmandu, and did a focus group uh, questions uh, with uh, with education faculty students. Also, surprisingly, about uh, ninety percent student in that particular class mm -hmm. said they didn't want to become teachers. The, the people who were supposed to be ed educators. Supposed to be educators. I mean, because they were in education faculty, uh -huh. which was supposedly training teachers, right? Well, so what, what did they say they want to be? They wanted to go into civil service, bureaucracy, government jobs. Oh, my God. Everybody's looking for security, like jobs, and then like uh, relax. And then that's where like there's no motivation. You lost it, right? Exactly. There's no motivation. At the same time, you at a society, you know, the way society looks at a government officer, the kind mm -hmm. of respect 
and power you can command is way much uh, different than a society looks at a teacher. teacher. So why would a young person who, I mean, if they had op option to, I mean, of course they couldn't, you know, mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons that we've already discussed, they, their only choice was to go to education faculty. But mm -hmm. even from there, they are there not necessarily because they wanted to become teacher because that was the only option available to them at that point in, mm -hmm. you know, the, when they were choosing post SLC. But if they had opportunity, they would rather go into other fa other fields than becoming a teacher. So overall, what I'm trying to say is the way our system and culture is set that it would never attract a really good talents in Nepal, whether mm -hmm. they go to education faculty or to you know science faculty to become teachers. So okay. if you're never attracting best of the best in any in your sector to become a uh, professional in the field, how can the field, the sector itself uplift, mm -hmm. right? So imagine, you know, top investment company in the, in, in the U.S. not going to uh, best universities and recruiting there. Yeah. It's like right? everybody will so, try to get there like best. Best, right? Yeah. But our education system, the way it's structured, does not try to get the best. Yeah, I mean, the and whole. I feel like the whole education system in Nepal, or at least the public perception of education system in Nepal is they are defining what the best is with the perception of what the education is, like difficulty of education is in retaining those, like a science or a high level doctor, engineers, high paid jobs. And they are thinking that is the best because uh, that is the best education compared to, say, doctor. Uh, a doctor here and say a civil servant or uh, any any person job holding uh, say a veterinarian uh, and that's still a doctor but uh, let's say an educator uh, a high school teacher or a third grade teacher a doctor and a third grade teacher for us both are same not one not one is better than the other the pay may be a little bit different but the edu like uh, impact of the third grade teacher on the people he or she serves, serves might be a lot more than the doctor. You never know. Like, uh, that's the thing is like uh, everybody holding any position in the society, anything at all, doing serving people, uh, doing whatever they can do the best, uh, holds their own ground. It's not just a doctor and engineers. And like to tell, like just to tell the truth, in India, let's say, uh, I know like uh, I had a lot of Indian friends who like, the exactly the same situation there's like engineers are their main goal once you get out uh, of the education system you have to be an engineer they're feeling the pressure from the family the society to be in that education uh, to be an engineer but like if you don't have a mind for it if you have a talent in something else you want to be a graphic designer or you are, you want to teach like a uh, your passion for whatever you want to do is uh, diminished by pressure from the society and the greatest teacher might be doing a doctor on without feeling a passion for it right now. And maybe there's a big option for like, how are you actually convincing the t uh, teachers now? I'm like more curious about it. <laughs> so, so from, uh, so, you know, when we, that, so when I realized that nobody wanted teachers, even including <laughs> students in education uh, colleges. Um, so that became as a big challenge to us. And and then we began to uh, sort of uh, uh, 
not try to uh, sort of strongly brand uh, Teach for Nepal around teaching, mm-hmm. uh, but around leadership and social change, and which we are. I mean, that's what we're trying to do fundamentally, because uh, as I said, the issue of uh, it's not just about a kid passing getting more numbers it's ultimately about justice right mm-hmm. if if uh, there's a such a big uh, other factors that influences kids life outcome then it is a social justice mission so we began to frame uh, our conversation more around um need for i mean the, similar i mean we ha- would have similar why why does a uh, a science graduate always have to be an engineer or mm. why can't an in- engineer go and teach what's wrong about teaching so again we have this i mean we talk to thousands maybe 5000 10000 uh, students a year uh, across colleges in nepal uh, we do big events with students and we try to build this converse the kind of conversation you and i are having mm. Uh, over the last one hour basically this is the conversation we have with young students we have we bring other people as i said from other sectors mm. uh, we uh, talk to media about this fundamental issue again and again so that we try to build this you know um, sort of mindset that it's okay it's uh, it's not not necessarily just okay but it's one of the best jobs that you can ever do as young graduate to come at least teach for 2 years because so, you, as you're mentioning earlier a third grade uh, teacher can probably have much bigger impact hmm. than uh, an engineer or a doctor if you're not doing with passion and commitment hmm. so uh, so we it, it's not easy it has i thought like after a couple of years, it'll be easier, uh, but uh, the challenge has stayed the same um, uh, in in terms of like, uh, like bringing more and more young people to mm. do this. But so, we've definitely grown grown over the years. Um, mm. uh, but we are also becoming more successful and more young people now. You know, many young people get to hear us from their first year in college, and uh, several tell me when I meet them, "Oh, I've been wanting to do this for." Uh, from my early years in college because I heard of this one Nepal. So it's definitely building up. And uh, so basically tell me, um, like, uh, say, if uh, any of our audience wants to be involved with you or uh, wanted to be teaching, say, can you give me a, a brief ca- criteria of who are, like, you recruiting as a teacher to teach in Nepal? Is it, like, only based on Nepal or is it, like, people who can come from abroad as well? Does it have to be Nepali or like any uh, any nation uh, nationals? Uh, what is your criteria of like who can come and teach and what are you expecting of them? That, uh, to, uh, broadly, anyone with a bachelor's degree can apply. Uh, but when I say anyone, it, it does have to be Nepali or person of Nepali origin because uh, one is for the legal reason. It's a two mm-hmm. years. It's not a short term voluntary work. It's a two years of full time commitment. and. There's a legal, because we have to work in public schools, uh, that means that we're working directly with government of Nepal. So there's a legal visa related legal challenges uh, that's, that restricts us from taking non-Nepali nationals for the most part. However, we can we have, uh, uh, and we do have, uh, you know, what we call NRNs, right? I mean, uh, Nepal, uh, descendant of Nepali parents who have, uh, uh, either moved as a kid to America, for example, mm-hmm. or were born there, wanted to spend uh, two years 
uh, at least two years teaching in Nepal. Uh, we do have young people like that who have come from other countries, uh, especially Nepali, but has to be a Nepali person. And uh, what, uh, like, what is it expected? Like, uh, is it paid or is it more like a voluntary or like how, what are the total expenses? How would they actually manage those? We we uh, we provide stipend, sort of a living stipend, um, like by rural Nepal uh, uh, community, which is about you know, by ne which we provide about nineteen thousand Nepali rupees, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, enough uh, for one person to stay in rural communities because uh, that's actually oftentimes our fellows tend to save uh, more than I do because in mm -hmm. villages there isn't a place you can really spend your money on. Uh, you're basically you know surviving there. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, often uh, you don't really pay rent. Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, teach for Nepal team, local community arranges for our fellows to stay. Uh, so you're only, you know, um, buying for your food um, and stuff. So that's not a lot of expenses. So we provide about a stipend, which is about half of what full-time teacher in Nepal would get. Mm -hmm. We also uh, provide other support in terms of uh, training, Tra transportation allowance, uh, work-related transportation allowance. Um, so, uh, so it's not entirely uh, like you don't have to. It would be too hard for a young person to not have any money for two years. Yeah. But we also don't pay it. It's sort of vol it is a voluntary. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we provide stipend. Yeah. So I mean, you need you do need. Uh, just be having a passion and coming and dropping off like i want to teach doesn't mean like uh you got you got to survive too so I, i'm glad you're taking care of those matter mm -hmm. and basically you are you are anybody who is doing that is uh giving their two li uh, two years of their lives trying to uh, teach and then they'll learn themselves too like uh, everything about like li having a life in there so it's not just yeah. about giving up it's about also about taking in what you can take yeah, it's a, such a huge opportunity to learn about uh, self, um, about uh, Nepal's rural community, about education system. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, discourse, interaction and training. So what happens is every year mm -hmm. we take application between July and uh, sort of first week of December. So it's, application is on Teach for Nepal's website. Anyone, again, with a bachelor's degree and commitment to teach for, in rural community for mm -hmm. two years. Uh, can op uh, apply. Okay, and can you just give a, me a website right now? Uh, it's uh, teachfornepal.org. Okay, awesome. I'll put that in the description as well. So uh, once once uh, prospective uh, candidates or prospective fellows apply, they go through a selection process. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a uh, application, there's a interview, and there's an activity-based selection so there's a three stages of selection and then once you make out through that selection process our selection rate is about 78 percent at the max it has been as low as four percent so it ranges from anywhere depending on the application volume uh, mm -hmm. anywhere between four to ten percent at the best so, uh, so uh, why, is it, why is it like uh, so low i mean uh, are there like uh, not qualified teachers applying or is it just something you have uh more application because of uh, how the popularity is gaining? It's both. One, we have a lot of applications. Uh, we tend to have uh, anywhere between 1,000 to 2,000 applications. And our capacity right now is on, like about 70 a, a, a cohort. Uh, mm. So that's one factor. Second is 
quality, especially because majority of uh, our applicant pool do come are graduates of uh, Nepali schools and university, and the kind of quality we're looking for, uh, unfortunately, is very difficult to find, uh, even when the volume is high. So it's a mixture of uh, both. Uh, and then once once you we select, they go through six weeks of residential, uh, very very sort of boot camp type intensive training. Uh, intensive training, yeah. uh, and then only then once you, once the person graduates that we place them in mm. public schools. Our school year starts in mid April, Boisak uh, with Nepali New Year. Mm. So a person starts working uh, in mid April, and every quarter. There are, there are four days of further leadership uh, and training workshop that happens throughout the two years. Okay, so and so, designed... so like all yep, of the yep. teachers basically go uh, as recruited, uh, recruited, and uh, once they are like done with their training, they go directly into like, okay, you are assigned to this school in this village, in this district, and uh, you find your rent, you find everything, you basically move there and you go into a school that's uh, in partnership with you or you team like teach for Nepal. Yeah, we place them, we arrange for transportation. We would have mostly arranged for a uh, place they can stay. Uh, they would not have to go and find a place to stay themselves. So pretty much everything is taken care of, uh, yeah. of until that point. Only once they begin to stay in the village, they can figure out because they can build their own mm -hmm. relationship and figure that out but until that point everything is taken care of okay now that's really interesting like uh at least you started uh eight eight, eight years ago and uh yeah. things has uh turned out pretty good i, I think you've uh, figured out a lot of uh problems and you uh, as you said you're still facing more so what has been like most uh significant in uh what has you what have you gained out of all of these like what are the stories that if you can tell any of them there are many. I mean, uh, one uh, uh, one is uh, what's happening. We look at what's happening at a multiple level, right? Mm -hmm. One is one is one is a student level. What's happening to students, right? Uh, mm -hmm. to, to the students that Teach for Nepal fellows teach. What we saw right after two years, because it's a two years of cycle, mm -hmm. is uh, very quickly we began to see that SLC grad pass rate. Mm -hmm. improved uh, by almost 40 percent in the schools that we began to uh, work. just just a quick one uh we don't uh, i remember the slc was taken out so we don't have slc right yeah no, no it, it is it's called see okay and uh, uh, uh so that is instead of calling it school level uh, school living certificate examination uh, it's now secondary uh, education examination SE and only the difference is that uh, you know we used a percentage based system mm -hmm. now kids get later grades okay graded in ABCD and yeah e graded F. in ABCD and uh, which means that a kid can uh, sort of get lower grades in some I mean earlier if you receive less than 32 uh, or 40 depending on the subject if they were mm -hmm. practical or not you failed and then you had to retake that exam one year later. Okay. Right, in a percentage-based mm -hmm. system. In later grading, what happens is uh, if you attend lower grade in one subject, mm -hmm. but still oh, your overall GPA is high, you still can move on to grade 11. So that's the only difference. The exam okay. still happens uh, broadly, like at the same time uh, and all that. Yeah, I kind of like this one because just imagining 
uh, if you failed a class and give, have to give it a next year, like you would not remember anything at all, and the class is going to be failed more than more often, and uh, that's that's just a ho that was a horrible way of the, the way right. education system was set. But as uh, as you went through, so yeah. SEE, right? Yeah. Yeah. Both SLC, we, because we work in both system, we yeah. started when SLC still was active. So um, uh, the graduation rate in our schools improved, uh, mm -hmm. like the, among the kids we teach, which means that the kids who we were teaching um, uh, then had opportunity to pursue higher education, both in Kathmandu. Uh, any given time, there are maybe 60 kids uh, that Teach for Nepal fellows have taught uh, are uh, in really good private schools, colleges in Kathmandu, pursuing higher education. O over the last uh, almost four or five years, we've had uh, uh, one, two or three uh, public school students who have gone on to find scholarship in international high school. Uh, and now there are three mm. girls who come from really poor marginalized background, uh, pursuing college in America on full scholarships. Okay, that's in, amazing. In Iowa. So, uh, you know, to see this, I mean, without, uh, to see these kids who come from one of the most poorest marginalized background, mm -hmm. and just because they were, they found right mentors in Teach for Nepal fellows, they are now have the opportunity to go to really good universities in America. That would have been unthinkable. So mm -hmm. that kind of stories is something that is emerging almost every day and that's just awesome. Second set of story that, that emerges in Teach for Nepal is, um, again, you know, how we were discussing about how education system boxes us, right? Mm -hmm. There's an engineer, you have to be this. Um, so we're recruiting these kind of young people and other factors we've not really, I mean, we've not really discussed is for really these bright young people who uh, could do well in Nepal, uh, big there is a big push factor to go abroad mm. and there's a pull factor that's at an individual level but i think there's even bigger push factor uh, to go uh, abroad either to study or work mm. and uh, if you're not now new narrative is like you know back then you if you studied science you're the best mm. now if you went to america you're the best or australia you're the best if you stay back in nepal you're the losers that's the big social narratives mm -hmm. that is emerged over the last 10 years that means that everyone is trying to get out but what has teach for nepal done is one we put it sort of a um, speed breaker uh, right after university many are instead of going abroad and when we recruit many would have been taking gres or taking TOEFL exams. So, but they get inspired and, and they go to spend two years in teaching. That al already is a speed break. Uh, and then what we're seeing is closer to 90% of our graduates, our Teach for Nepal alumni, are staying back in Nepal and working in education or related fields, mm. even after their two years of commitment. So our alumni is one of the biggest stories that uh, that is emerging and we think in next 10 years, you hear that uh, young people who are starting really innovative uh, social enterprises, young people who mm -hmm. really making impact, they would have come from Teach for Nepal program. That's amazing. That that, that's we're a... beginning to see that already. So yeah. our alumni now run five public schools in Kathmandu, the public schools that were about to be closed because there were no students. Mm -hmm. they, that, that has been now are in the, being in the process of uh, turning around. Uh, our alumni are doing 
starting rural farming projects. Our alumni are starting projects to connect uh, STEM uh, uh, and girls' education. Uh, so there are several these tiny little enterprises that our alumni are uh, leading at this point. So they're small under the radar, uh, mm -hmm. but in 10 years time, I can see that some of these initiatives will go big. Yeah, and I'm, that would have probably even bigger impact uh, than this Nepal is able to have now. Uh, our alumni now are working with uh, our uh, sort of, you know, supporting mayors uh, in different cities. So th there's this, this new sort of this really young, passionate people who've seen the ground, who've seen the communities, seen the problem, are so finding their own local solutions. Yeah, so like uh, in, just hearing those stories makes me like uh, insp ins get me inspired. Like I'm I'm a teacher myself. Like I teach few classes here, and uh, if like right after the school, like when I decided to come here, uh, like if uh, if say like an uh, opportunity has come arise, like I may not have chosen exactly like uh, to stay in Nepal, but people for those who chose and uh, uh, did their best to serve. As you say, like uh, for all of those students who decided to stay in Nepal and uh, keep on continuing with their passion, I guess uh, that's their passion to be involved with you, with your organization and see like if they can uh, be in public service, uh, trying to teach, trying to develop themselves as a leadership. And uh, with that experience of teaching the students, I think w the way you said it, they're gaining a lot of uh, leadership qualities. One thing I'm, I'm pretty sure like uh, all of the Nepalese who come to America are lacking the most is self-confidence. Self-confidence and leadership. We, it took a while for me to uh, g gain my self-confidence in uh, speaking with public, speaking in front of a hundred people, thousand people. Like it took time for me, but that uh, took a lot of pressure. A lot of, lot of Nepalese uh, who come here are really shy like it's in our culture to not be able to s go in front of a thousand crowd of say if there's a thousand people if you are uh, from nepal it's harder for you to stand in front of them not even say anything just go and stand in front of them compared to america as you know like uh, american ki uh, kids are like extremely high on self-confidence and I, I love that about america it brings uh, like passion in within and wi what you're doing brings up a lot of passion and uh, brings that level of confidence for this uh, for those who wants to be a teacher to have that uh, self uh, self educational uh, or the self belief in what they can lead themselves in uh, whatever the situation they can be in so you are not growing the teachers you are not just helping the students you are making a future leader which i'm like really really uh, more more the more i hear you more i feel like i'm, I'm getting more passionate about your project <laughs> and that's that's amazing. So, uh, uh, with all of those talks, like, how are you getting funded, though? I remember because you, uh, the way we first met was about many, many seven, eight, nine years ago. You came to Saint Cloud State with Kutumba Band, and uh, we were, uh, like, uh, we were the school support uh, member, and uh, we, like, I, uh, we met, and we organized the school's Kutumba concert. Uh, and uh, we uh, raised some f uh, charity, uh, we raised some fund for your uh, organization. Like, uh, besides uh, raising fund for, from concert and so on, like, what are actually are you doing to uh, promote your organization as well as uh, promote for the funding or gain the funding for whatever the goals you're, you're having? 
so the way we fund ourselves uh, uh, is uh, about majority of funds now we raise locally in Nepal. Um, uh, we now have partnerships with local governments. Uh, so city governments that I was mentioning before, mm -hmm. they provide some support to work in the regions. One, one part of funding is that. Second is we partner with local corporations in Nepal and banks. Uh, that raises another set of money. Uh, then other set of funding is we also try to, in a learning how, what I learned in the U.S. about you know individual charitable giving, everybody gives you know ten twenty dollars. We also try to do similar campaign in Nepal, you know, asking a thousand, two thousand, or five thousand rupees a month, so people in Nepal can also donate uh, to us, uh, even individuals, not just mm. big. Like you know, if you have a thousand rupees, spare thousand rupees that you uh, could save from not having, uh, not going to cafe every day, uh, that you can <clears throat> uh, donate to uh, Teach for Nepal. We also do events. Uh, every year we do walkathon events. Uh, we also invite uh, people outside of Nepal to come and trek every day and raise money. Part of you know, like the you know marathon type challenge we do with a Everest base camp trek. So people raise five thousand dollars. Part of that money goes to the expense, but part of that raise uh, stays with Teach for Nepal's work. So th that's one set of work. Second is uh, through uh, Nepali diaspora abroad and some international foundations. So one of the thing I would, I'm trying to really work harder with, uh, I've been trying to work hard over the last uh, couple of years is to try to build a network of Nepali uh, diaspora who are in the US uh, to support us. Uh, like, you know, it, it costs us about uh, closer to $5,000 a year to uh, recruit, to train for, you know, um, uh, these uh, young future leaders to, to provide them with the stipend and other support. It costs us about $5,000. So we're asking Nepali communities uh, to take on, you know, sponsoring one or two teachers, mm. uh, like, you know, $5,000, $10,000 a year commitment. Uh, uh, Nepal Rising in Seattle has been doing that for last uh, couple, few years. Um, uh, so, so uh, one other sort of angle is uh, trying to get Nepali diaspora involved in our work, and, mm -hmm. and third definitely is um, uh, foundations uh, in the U.S. and other countries who can provide us with the grants. Okay, so can you give me a exact? Do you have a donation link or any uh, website that people, if they want to, can uh, go and uh, have that information? Yeah, they can go to, again, Teach for Nepal's website, uh, uh, www.teachfornepal.org, and then click on Donate link. Okay, that that's, uh, helps out and, a lot and, of people. And, and the U.S., it is tax deductible. Okay, that's interesting. So, with all of these, uh, like, whatever you are saying and whatever is happening, your, uh, your whole, whole organization, I feel like that's such an important step in uh, placing at least doing your part in uh, trying to f help out uh, all of those students who are basically about to fail their student, like uh, fail their school. And uh, once you fail their school, just for the people who uh, who don't have a general idea, like once you fail the schools in the villages, the kids are basically manual labor. They have to go into manual labor. The technicality jobs are such a limited, uh, limited. Manual labor are not fun. Uh, like can you can you describe me like what are the what are the actual options for students who have actually go to school and not go to school like do you know, do you have any like examples of what actually is the life because that that is something still i 
I like having trying to know about the condition in Nepal still I cannot grasp it if you look at macro perspective not take a very micro individual yeah. perspective if you take a macro perspective in Nepal primarily I think it's coming down to two trends in Nepal right now mm. um, one is as I was mentioning some of us who we went to private school had access to good education um, could speak, uh, do well in English, passed our SLCs well, um, either studied uh, plus two or bachelor's in Nepal or India. Uh, immediate, uh, either after plus two, we mm. apply to go abroad, or after bachelor's, we go to uh, uh, abroad. And they, this, and then go to America, Australia, uh, UK for the most part, and few European countries in Japan. That is probably sort of a, a section of Nepal's population, and that's increasing by thousands every year. Uh, but that's sort of one, but that represents a section of Nepal society uh, uh, by e economic and education privileges. Mm. For rest, uh, primary narrative in Nepal is go to go to countries uh, in Middle East mm. uh, or Malaysia. And that's where I think if you do not, if you have some level of high school uh, or no education at all, uh, I mean, some level of school education, some level of high school education, um, that's probably the only other option. If you did not want to stay and work in menial labor work in Nepal. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's at the sort of every year, about half a million Nepali young people go to uh, work in uh, in very dangerous situation in Middle East or very difficult jobs in Korea and Malaysia. And and that with the COVID, not... yeah, with the COVID thing happening, they stopped that as well and people are returning. So there's going to be massive unemployment in Nepal right now. Yes, the unemployment, which is already high, but was sort of made it soft by this international employment opportunity. And Nepal's economy primarily runs on the remittance that are sent by these people. Uh, will definitely have a big impact uh, uh, due to COVID. So that's sort of a big difference. Uh, I mean, from a macro perspective, one set of young people go to America, go to Australia, go to UK, um, maybe some Japan and Europe. One set of uh, young people go to Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, support uh, work uh, in dangerous situation. And, you know, every year we see about almost uh, uh, 1,500 uh, to 2,000 Nepali young people go abroad to work and every year we hear three or five of them returning in a body bag and these stories don't come from america these stories come from Qatar. that's, that's like South not Europe. not every yeah. year that's more like every day or day. something every yeah, day 1500 to 2000 every day every yeah. year is about half a million and yeah. every day three to uh, five of them return in body bags Dead. and yeah. that's the big difference i would say yeah like uh, that's a that's a big number, and with with the population of uh, people, students who actually graduate school, those are that, those numbers there. But the people uh, for the graduate or the students who haven't even completed their school, who have dropped out, the numbers even worse. Like, uh, what do you actually do? Like, uh, beside the job, I think uh, Nepal always had a big big problem with uh, entrepreneurship and uh, having the businesses and growing like economically being stable in a smaller level uh, in the villages the, everybody have to come to city all the city folks have to go abroad it's always been that cycle and uh, maybe like what you are like uh, bringing to uh, the students uh, maybe you can have that in the courses as well what you can develop in the uh, rural side 
is have them also have that leadership skill, also have them uh, courage, encouragement skill to be more entrepreneurship from younger age. Maybe that can be part of your is a, like a education system beside math, science and like uh, all of your regular school level courses have them also be more independent. Maybe that can come from the villages before the you know, city's students. I don't know. That's just my like little opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely we agree with that, and we've been already doing that. Um, well, we when we uh, what we say is we our student vision, like the what we aspire to attain in our classroom, is we say that of course kids have to excel academically, as in do well in your studies. But mm -hmm. we also are working to build, uh, as you said, leadership skills. So we are trying to build their understanding of their own society, being critical of that society, building. Uh, we also say that education also has to give financial independence, which means that being entrepreneurial, so mm -hmm. starting um, finding economic opportunity for themselves and their families. Uh, we also talk about uh, resilience, like, you know, once you, um, for kids in public school, they face many, many setbacks in life and instead of giving up, like building their capacity mm -hmm. to rise up despite all the barriers uh, they face. We also mm -hmm. talk about, you know, uh, like understanding and appreciating diversity uh, and critical thinking. So that these these are the elements that uh, that goes into our classroom, not not uh, as a part of a regular lesson or because our program is designed in a way to attract uh, young people from many different backgrounds. So some um, go into teaching after they have completed engineering. Some come from la law schools or business schools or social science schools so that means that they can sort of use their academic trainings into doing projects in nepal like some mm -hmm. of the engineering graduates can do a project around robotics uh, law students do you know uh, education campaign around law justice uh, mm -hmm. you know raising issues or for example uh, many of our fellows almost 50 percent of fellows tend to be women so they do a lot of projects around women rights and health in these rural communities. Uh, we've seen our fellows do entrepreneur, you know, it's th things like, you know, if you teach um, uh, profit and loss, mm -hmm. we all, all of us sort of normally uh, yeah. wrote, learn and memorize, right? The formulas, but our fellows tend to set up a small marketplace in the schools to, so that kids can, you know, bring their vegetables mm -hmm. from homes and then sell to their teachers or others other students or you know do chatpate make chatpate yeah give them yeah and sell so give them this practical sort of skills how they entrepreneurial skill can be given all the way from like uh, whatever their age because that's going to develop them that's going to make them uh, believe in themselves in their capabilities and themselves to be growing up and like so when you uh, like you said you worked with uh, mayors and, uh, and like did you work with developing more of the educational curriculum or uh, how did you how do you work with other like a government agency or have you planned on working on a future like a government institutions regarding developing your uh, organization's goal through um, so basically through all this experience uh, mm. one of the things i've uh, come to feel is that it's just important but also it's more uh, even further uh, other way to engage young people would be to bring them into our public system itself 
like in the government now that local government this city 753 city governments are primarily the uh, responsible entity for managing public schools uh, and we see that in these rural many of these rural city governments uh, there's a big dearth of quality human resources uh, we what we're trying to do now through at this new initiative that I was talking earlier, very early in part of my introduction, mm -hmm. called Niti Sala, is we're trying to bring Teach for Nepal alumni who work in villages mm -hmm. to work with uh, mayors and education office in these local governments so that we can bring experience of working in classroom for two years and then advise them on making education uh, policies, uh, uh, doing teachers training, building mm -hmm. local curriculum, so that, you know, if uh, Nepal fellows are in few schools, but if we can help build the institutional capacity of governments, mm. then you can we can be all in all schools. That's how we, you know, the problem is scaling mm. that we discussed. Is that's how if in in Tulsipurdang, for example, Tishu Nepal fellows are in about nine schools, but when I and Tishu Nepal alumni are doing this survey, we're doing surveys of twenty-eight thousand schools students, mm. right? when we're making education policy recommendation that would impact all teachers and schools. Mm -hmm. So that's the way now next sort of approach uh, that uh, we're trying to pilot uh, and work is mm -hmm. to bring these young people to uh, work in governments directly also. A lot of times, uh, whenever the government has done anything at all in past or even this uh, goes around the world is government whenever they make a decision it kind of impacts everybody like uh, everybody's that's uh, affiliated with the government in one way or another as an uh, government public school which is directly under government so if the government has a policy or education system that is flawed or has some deficiency all of the students have to go through it so not having a direct uh, contact within the students, not having a proper guidance by the public uh, about their government's own work, which is working and which is not, uh, that kind of impacts everybody in having a bad outcome. So what uh, you are trying to do, uh, what I feel, is at least have uh, all of those outcomes be in a, po a positive light, right? Right, exactly, exactly. So move ultimately, as you rightly pointed out, Ultimately, it uh, it is both the res uh, responsibility, but also that that's where the ability lies in the government mm -hmm. to impact all schools, all children. So mm -hmm. our next uh, question that I've been thinking a lot is how do we strengthen the capacity there? How do we build institution there so that uh, uh, all kids' life can be touched? Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're almost... Uh, like uh, we, we've been talking a lot and I, I've been enjoying a lot, but I wanted to know like uh, to the final is what are your future objective? Like uh, what are actually do you want out of the organization? How big do you want it to be? Or to put it in a better perspective, what is your ultimate goal when you started this organization and what you have now? Definitely, ultimately our vision is like, we want to make sure that all kids in Nepal uh, have access to quality education. That's what we say, what we're trying to do. And we uh, are trying to do by nurturing leadership of Nepali young people themselves. So sort of uh, at the heart of what we believe is ultimately it is in us Nepali people to figure mm -hmm. out uh, problems to our solution and solutions can not be found uh, 
uh, in boardrooms what solutions can should uh, uh, and can we uh, can be looked at from ground up from the mm -hmm. schools from the from the institutions in these rural communities so that's why we bring young people to stay live learn uh, in these communities so to to uh, we are in a we feel that we're in a path uh, we've started this journey and we're on a right path of uh, seeing the impact at the student and our fellows level. We are on that path. But next uh, question, and Tishu Nepal will sort of continue to do this work uh, to bring more and more. I mean, uh, over by 2030, we'll have uh, uh, perhaps about two to 3,000 young people who have gone through our program. Uh, and if we continue to uh, sort of see about 80, 90% staying in Nepal, that's like, you know, about 2000 really tried young people staying in Nepal doing different work in social justice and education. That's the direction and vision that we're working towards. Uh, and uh, that's one part of what we've been uh, doing and we'll continuously do that through uh, Teach for Nepal. And now sort of new trajectory I'm trying to take personally in my own leadership journey is to trying to figure out how, like, as, through my learning of last seven, eight years, I've seen the challenges of schools, which are government institution at the lowest level. But over the last two years, working with the mayor, advising in a local government capacity, I'm also beginning to see that problem is not just at the school level, problem is much bigger than that. Problem is at the institutional level, the dysfunctionality that we would see in a classroom and a school actually also exist in 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 public systems uh, so if we cannot figure out a way to create a better accountability structure better performance systems better management structure then the system will continue to exist in current form therefore uh, to have big impact to have impact at a scaled level uh, we would have to also uh, have uh, support uh, these local institutions that can have such a big policy impact uh, in uh, in in the community they serve so next uh, sort of uh, path i'm trying to explore is to strengthen the capacity of uh, local oh. governments uh, and okay. work with them to have much bigger impact uh, than we've had over the last eight years yeah that's that's a lot of uh, things in your plate uh, in your hand and you've been doing a wonderful job like I've been hearing, I've been following your page and all of the students and all of the photos uh, of the recruit, all the teachers and uh, faces of the students. That uh, brings out a lot of positivity for everybody. We, like, uh, I myself am in the other part of the world and I'm looking at you and you are doing your, all of your, uh, whatever you are working on inspires me to be a better teacher or be the, to look at the teaching itself as such an important job and you bringing in all of like hundreds of teachers and giving them hope and opportunity to work and change the lives of younger students from uh, like rural part of villages in Nepal. That's a, a great deal you're doing and I really appreciate uh, you talking with me and uh, giving a little information and little background on your organization, what you've been doing up to. And I want to thank you a lot for uh, your work and hope like uh, there would be a lot more to come and wishing you nothing but the success thank you Abbas. it was good talking to you definitely good connecting you uh, back with you again after years uh, all the success with your podcast uh, really appreciate all the 
uh, audience listeners who have uh, taken their time out of their busy schedule to uh, be here with us to listen to our work. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope uh, you have a great day and good luck for all of your teachers and all of your students. Mm -hmm.